This is the O'Reilly Bots Podcast. I'm John Bruner. I'm coming to you from the O'Reilly AI Conference in New York, where the really exciting thing here is that people are talking about AI products, real things that use artificial intelligence. It's possible that AI is finally crossing the line from just being whatever is on the horizon to being something that we have now. On this episode of the podcast, we have three conversations with people who are applying AI in different ways. AI is, of course, a critical component of a lot of good bots. You need AI to make sense of natural language, to generate language back to your user, and to make the kinds of decisions and take the kinds of action that people need from really good bots. A quick reminder that if you're interested in bots and AI for bots, you ought to come to O'Reilly Bot Day on October 19th in San Francisco. AI will be a major part of the program. For more information on O'Reilly Bot Day, visit O'Reilly.com bots. My first conversation here is with Hillary Mason. She's an authority on machine learning and artificial intelligence and is the founder of Fast Forward Labs. So Hillary, you gave a talk today here at the AI conference about AI products. Yes. Which is really exciting because if we're talking about AI products, it must mean that AI is at a place where it can be a product. I think that's where we are today, finally. Um, and that's why there's so much enthusiasm and hype around AI at the moment. So is AI yet something that we talk about as being like a, a real product? Or does AI always just mean kind of whatever is next in computing? <laughs> yeah, so I started my talk by really trying to hone in on a useful definition of AI for the purposes of the product discussion. Because anytime you have a bunch of people in a room right now and they say the word AI, they all mean different things mm -hmm, by it, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, you know, it's uh, we're in a really tough place where it's had a definition as a subfield of computer science and it, it still has that meaning. And technically, AI has become this umbrella now over a variety of different techniques, things, you know, that I would still call machine learning techniques, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, some of them quite simple, some of them quite complex. Um, but the real reason we're talking about it is because it is actually possible to build around it. Though I do still love that quote, um, that AI is whatever a computer cannot do today. Right, right, right. right. So in your talk, you mentioned a couple of places where we have something that's arguably AI. And it's already in a product. Things mm -hmm. like, um, you know, in, in Google Image Search, a lot of really sophisticated image recognition tools. That is my favorite AI yeah. product today. Yeah. And but do people think of that as an AI product or is it just kind of like little a little add on? Well, I would argue that the reason it is such a good AI product is that the AI piece is in the background. Mm -hmm. And what you notice is that it has these amazing search capabilities where you can say, you know, show me photos of Hillary in Arizona with a tree. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. can actually find that, yeah. um, which is much more the way we think about searching our photos than the way that most tools to date have been able to provide us with those right. search capabilities. So that's why I think that if we're going to talk about AI products, that's the ideal sort of form of the product, one in which it gives us a capability that seemed would have seemed like magic mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. five years ago. And yet that capability is not nearly as interesting as the fact that the app is actually useful. Right, right, right. If you think back to something like, you know, the emergence of, of Google in the late 90s as like the greatest, you know, search yes. experience. Um, 
it it came about in an era when searching the web required like a carefully constructed string <laughs> of like capital and capital or capital not you know or in order paging to your way through a yahoo you know <laughs> manually curated list that's of websites right, that's right or even a book yeah like start the whole with, internet catalog yeah. right 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 yeah and look up the like look up the pointer and type it into your computer mm-hmm. um i always started with the uh the arts, leisure, and lifestyle section <laughs> <laughs> Yahoo, and then music under that. And then, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so it seems like a lot of these things kind of take off when they improve that, that one increment that takes away a lot of the, the, the mental overhead that's required of a user so that you're not sort of constructing a, you know, a search query that requires an understanding of the underlying system. Yeah. You're just kind of typing something sort of natural. No, I love that you phrased it that way because um, I think the real potential of these products is to eliminate cognitive drudgery Hmm. um, and both the kind that we engage in because of our tools. Like, um, you know, I would, I'll admit I'd be happy if I never had to structure another SQL join (laughs) again, Um, you know, in in the way we used to have to write these very specialized queries for for older search engines Mm -hmm. and even Mm -hmm. using, you know, specialized syntax. It, to things that, you know, we do as human beings that could possibly be automated with no loss to us. And mm-hmm. by that, I mean things like trying to arrange a time and place for dinner, which might sure. involve a dozen emails. Yep. So another really good point that you made in your talk uh, here at the AI conference was that the first applications of, of AI are things that you're describing, basically things where you can replace a human, maybe a human you're paying. In the case of making mm-hmm. a reservation with your friends, that's something your assistant might do. Or it's some other human function, something that's kind of an annoying thing that we all have to do, looking up directions to something, for instance. Sure. Um, and then the next generation of AI products are going to be sort of products that that don't exist in our current context yet because they've never yes. been practical things for computers to do. Mm-hmm. So do, any idea of kind of like what some interesting next generation AI products might be? Sure. So, um, you know, when we think about this sort of... Uh, product development process, it's always easier to get people to build something that will save them money, mm-hmm. right? So that's why you end up with a lot of these things being applied to solve problems that are already solved today by like pure human labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully those things are applied to make those people more effective so they can spend their time perhaps doing something else. But we worked on this summarization prototype, which I also mentioned in the talk, um, that lets you sort of take an article and extract sentences from the article. And it works on texts of arbitrary length, uh, meaning that you can take a book and extract a, a sample of sentences and paragraphs that sort of summarize the mm-hmm. content of the book. They contain the same information that is contained in the entire book. So that's fine. I can now go from reading a book, which mm-hmm. might take me three, eight hours, to reading two pages, 20 right, pages, right. a arbitrary uh, you know, shortening <laughs> of that. So that's something I already pay to do with my time, Mm -hmm. but I can do it much more effectively. What I'm really interested in are things like now I can read every business book published last year, Um, um, which I could not possibly pay for with my time. I don't have that much time in my life. Um, And now I have that capability, um, you know, with some caveats. Right, right, right. So it's applications like that that I I think are pretty exciting. There are some really interesting uh, things that, that just fascinate me where people are generating content uh, with AI, with especially mm-hmm. sort of neural networks, things like, you know, Deep Dream from Google, uh, where they're <laughs> starting with random noise and then kind of 
uh, you know, finding the gradients and moving each pixel to a place where it starts to look like a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, there, there's this extraordinary article that I'll link to in the show notes for this, where someone has managed to compose classical music using recurrent neural networks. Mm-hmm. So he took a, a giant archive of MIDI files and um, <laughs> used them to train the, the network and then created new content, uh, new sort of pieces of classical music out of it. You know, you start with a chord and then you predict what the next chord will mm-hmm. be from that one. Um, the results are really fascinating. It's kind of a view of what what our new kind of AI written world might look like because it they the pieces he's created with this neural network are identical to classical music in like superficial texture. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the arpeggios, the kind of like the way that melodies kind of sit on top of harmonies, the rhythms are, are all very convincing sort of generic Mozart. Um, but the underlying structure makes no sense. Like it just <laughs> it goes all over the place. It wanders. It has, it has no, it has no real sense of like the art um, uh-huh. underneath it. Uh, it sometimes gets stuck in like a local minimum and it'll hit the same chord 30 oh, times in a hilarious. row and then like, and then it'll bump itself out somehow. Mm-hmm. But it, we're looking at a lot of products where, you know, AI sort of classifies and labels things, but I'm really mm-hmm. curious about whether wholly sort of AI generated content is an area that's, that you're looking at as well. Yes. Um, we've done a lot of work in natural language generation, mm-hmm. which I think we can now call AI generated content. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's something that I see as having a huge potential. So, I mean, there's a spectrum of NLG capabilities that go from essentially Mad Lib like templates mm-hmm. where a human has written the story with some gaps and you fill in the names, dates, places, whatever it is, and out comes the finished piece. Um, all the way over to, you know, abstractive, really um, more genuine neural network based uh, mm-hmm. language being assembled. And so so there's a lot that's really exciting happening there. Most of the products in the market are um, primarily being used for business intelligence applications. Hmm. So if you look at the media around language generation, a lot of it is sort of, you know, reporters are being replaced by AIs. Right, and we right. know that's not true because... These articles can, or these engines can only write articles that have been written before functionally. These are things like narrative Um, science, for instance. Yes, and automated insights. uh And there's a a handful of companies in this space, um, all of whom have products that allow you to say, here's the structured data. Here's the language that correlates with that data or that com- that goes with that data. And let's output it from the system. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually built an NLG system that writes real estate ads. Hmm. Um, and we had a little twist on it that's slightly different because we took uh, thousands, tens of thousands of real estate listings. So uh-huh. structured data being like number of bedrooms, bathrooms, property size, price, location. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the, the language being the advertisement itself. Yeah. Um, and so we trained up a model that built the templates and then you could put in new structured data and it would use those generated templates to make Mm. the resulting text. So sort of a nice hybrid approach. And we learned a lot about real estate language Mm -hmm. um, in that we found that an apartment that was uh, described as cozy was 400 square feet smaller than the average for that zip code here in New York City. Mm. Um, but if it was described as large or grand or spacious, it was at the average or slightly below. <sighs> Meaning that if real estate agents ever talk about size, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's a small property. You don't yeah, want to yeah, yeah. look at it, probably. Um, 
and but are large apartments just not described as having any? They don't any bother size mentioning terms? the size if it's a large place. The statistic speaks for itself in that case. Yeah. So, um, so this was an interesting side effect of the language generation project because now we're getting to sort of uh, see the the biases that real estate agents encode in the language they choose to use. Interesting. Um, you can look back at the weights in your model between the sort of characteristics of the apartment and the words that come out. Mm -hmm. And you can see things like uh, luxury properties tend to be described with more adjectives than mm. non-luxury properties. Um, there's lots of, of bizarreness there. I only bring that up because it's an interesting side effect of mm. building the product. Right. You kind of, you wind up replicating the dishonesty of the humans who... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, the, stuff you're using the, to train. the biases in that data are expressed in the, the language that is eventually generated. Fascinating. Were you able to, uh, to take the listings and, and test them in some way and then, like, optimize the, the listings for, you know, clickiness or, or interest in the <laughs> listings? We did not. Um, ours was more of a demonstration, a prototype. We also applied it to restaurant reviews, by mm. the way because that's also highly structured data. So mm -hmm. if you think of the top of the Yelp page for a restaurant, you know, is it good for groups? Where's the uh, location? What kind right, of cuisine right. is it? Um, and there's plenty of narrative there that is in, in many cases quite florid and, and like a lot of fun <laughs> to play with. Um, but we couldn't think of a non-spammy or malicious use for the yeah, yeah. generated content. So we ended up not actually building uh -huh. it. Um, but ours was intended as a demonstration of technique, not as yeah. a finished product. And so no no feedback here. Though if you were to build this kind of product, that feedback loop would be absolutely necessary. Interesting. This is kind of, yeah, you can you can optimize the world given enough test cases and and sort of a a good sense of what the what the weights are that you're able to to move around. Well, as long as you have structured data and the narrative, you can do this. Um, yeah. But again, anything really creative is outside the bounds of what these systems can do right now. Anything with real artistic merit. Yes. Unless you're happy to take the million monkeys approach where you then have a human <laughs> right. on the other side of the machine saying, that one's pretty good. Yeah, you eventually find something. Yeah. There, is a, there is a um, service that'll uh, generate music or it's pitched at... Um, you know, background music for videos. Mm -hmm. uh, and the real advantage is that you can have it generate music of, of any arbitrary length. So if you need 48 seconds of music for your video, that might ordinarily be a difficult amount of music to find on like a stock music website, but you can have it generate exactly the right amount of music. But it's, it's highly constrained. There are basically five styles of music that it'll write in. And I'm not sure how intelligent it actually is. It may just be taking an opening phrase and a closing phrase and a very highly repeatable uh -huh. middle segment that's kind of um, yeah nested in some way so that you can keep going. Well, that reminds me of something that um, you know comes up when you're really trying to build a product, mm -hmm. which is um, is something that I think gets overlooked a lot, which is that uh, the perfect generic formulation of your problem, if you could solve that, it might even be generalizable AI. It's very hard. Mm -hmm. But if you mm -hmm. can narrow your problem down as much as possible, where you're able to accept constraints, like we're only going to generate five types of music mm -hmm. and we don't mm -hmm. care if they duplicate, um, then you have a problem that's quite solvable. And so I think a lot of uh, what's important about building AI products right now is that ability to be able to narrow the problem space down as much as possible. Hmm. Uh, and that's also why we see uh, things that pop up that won't do things like look at your email and recognize every kind of event you might go to, but we'll look at your email and recognize, you know, sales meetings right, and right. travel. 
Yeah, and a right. meetup invitation. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's that narrowed down problem uh-huh. space. So do you have advice for someone who might be kind of, um, you know, running an internal research uh, department and looking at some problem that they've been handed by, say, the marketing department, and, and they're working on some AI, and the, the edict is cook up some AI to address this problem. <laughs> is there like a, do you have generalized advice for people who are kind of developing and implementing uh, AI products? I do, but I'll, I'll put a caveat on it that my generalized advice may not be very useful. <laughs> the, the more specific the question, right. the better the advice I, gets. I should have narrowed the question down in order to make Right. That. Um, I mean, I, I think the trick today is to really understand what problem people are ultimately trying to solve. So a lot of folks say, you know, I want to do this thing with data or with AI, um, and it may not be the right question to ask. So really understanding what are the adjacent questions that might be you know, more valuable mm-hmm. um, and then figuring out, you know, how do we narrow that down to something where we have a robust approach? We have data. We have um, some metric we can use to evaluate the success of our approach, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, all of those things. And then from there, having a plan for how you simplify, architect, and then operationalize the product once it actually is ready to be deployed into the real world. Awesome. Hillary, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program. <laughs> it's always a lot of fun to talk to you, too. Awesome. Uh, this is terrific. Uh, and if listeners want to find you online, where do they look? Uh, look for me on Twitter at hmason or Hillary at fastforwardlabs.com. And fastforwardlabs.com has a lot of information about our work. Awesome. Hillary Mason, thanks so much. Thank you. Next up, we'll talk about human in the loop. This is another critical part of artificial intelligence. It's something a lot of people are interested in with bots, because bots can be a way to sort of augment human workers, people like customer service assistants or travel agents. I'm here now with Jimmy Smoot. He's the founder and CEO of Vesper, which is a sort of hybrid artificial intelligence and human assistant that helps executives with things like travel arrangements. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, thank you. So talk a little bit about how the the humans fit into your loop and um, why aren't you just using all AI? Uh, You know, I I think that there's, uh, within the media, there's a a lot of uh, talk about the powers of AI. uh, And and I think a lot of times it can be somewhat overstated. The technology just isn't there yet for for a lot of uh, use cases. Specifically, when it comes to something like travel, you really have to have accuracy. So we really depend on humans and, and human intelligence to, uh, to to maintain that accuracy. So, yeah. So is it principally kind of error checking that you're doing, or are there also uh, aspects of like human taste that that are essential that you find you need in, in the loop there? Yeah. So you know, we find that early in the process with the new user. Having a human touch is critical to developing trust. You know, so for instance, when you sign up for Vesper, uh, you do a call with one of our people just to kind of you know establish that trust and that rapport early on, and then we we taper that. So as you continue to operate with Vesper, you know it becomes less and less important having that human connection. Yeah. Uh, but but initially, we find it's pretty critical because without trust, you can't really get the requests in the system. So yeah. So. You're kind of augmenting uh, the humans who are in your loop with this AI. They're taking requests. They're uh, condensing them a little bit. You know, maybe pulling out some some uh, information and helping structure them before they go to the human. How are you thinking about that? Yeah. So uh, we really rely on uh, the data sciences to extract information from unstructured data, right? So you can think of the problem in multiple stages. Uh, when somebody sends an email or a text message into Vesper. We need to figure out how to take, you know, an unstructured text message or a string of, you know, text 
and uh, structure it and compare it with data that we have stored on the user on our end. Uh, and that's really kind of what we use uh, machine learning to, to figure that out. So information extraction to determine, you know, if somebody says next Tuesday at 3 o'clock in New York, for instance, uh, there's a lot of information you got to pull out of that and then compare it with information that we have stored on a user, like their calendar, preference data, et cetera. So you're saving the human assistant the trouble of just like going through and parsing out the email in the manner of a, of a normal assistant. Yeah, yeah, in the short term. You know, in the, in the long term, there's things we thought about, like being able to allow an assistant uh, to translate and to work with different languages. You know, for instance, like this problem becomes more interesting at that point. Uh, but in the short term, yeah, it's really just, you know, trying to create some more efficiency, uh, remove errors on the part of a person. So how are you thinking about the, the people who are working for you as the assistants? Um, are these, uh, you know, people who have kind of a new job description of, of sorts, being like a, a virtual assistant uh, augmented by, by AI? Who are these people? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things we're really interested in doing is unlocking talent that, um, you know, needs some more geographical flexibility, right? So you can think in, in terms of, you know, somebody who may live in L.A., you know, and, you know, may want to move out of L.A. because it's expensive. I live in L.A., for instance. Uh, and they want to move to like Riverside or something, but they can't necessarily keep their job in Santa Monica because it's a three-hour commute, right? Those people should still be able to work, and they still can work, right? So it's just a matter of figuring out how to unlock those folks. Uh, so we think of them as employees. You know, they, they work for Vesper. They're, uh, they're employees of the company, uh, and uh, we, really, we just rely on them to, to, um, to really help service our clients. Terrific. It's a, it's a cool kind of look at the, at the next economy. Um, a lot of concern about whether... AI will replace human functions, um, but also a lot of interest in ways that AI could augment human functions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things is your computers are good at certain types of tasks, looking at a ton of data, trying to identify some patterns, like those kind of things. Uh, but when you need something like scheduling, it's a service. Like, you know, an assistant is a service. Like, that's one of the problems I have with bots. Like, bots, uh, a lot of bots that exist right now, chat bots, the like, uh, it, you know, you're, you're basically effectively, like, if you're using a bot, you're like calling a 1-800 number and you're being like cycled through a bunch of prompts that are predetermined. You know, it's not a very satisfying experience, like those kind of things. So, um, you know, we really think uh, that, you know, humans do have a place in the future. And you know, I, I don't foresee general intelligence on the horizon anytime soon. So up until then, you know, there's like going to be a segregation of work. There's going to be some tasks that can be automated, will. The other types of tasks, thing like things like, you know, what we're working on that require human touch and human interaction, uh, we'll have a place, and they'll continue to have a place. And it's, it's just really at that point figuring out a way to scale people and reduce errors and make people more effective and like that, and you know eliminate fatigue and the different things like that with people. So, yeah. so Jimmy Smoot from Vesper, if uh, listeners want to find you on the internet, where should they look? Yeah, you can check out our website. It's www.vesper.ai. That's V-E-S-P-E-R.ai. Or uh, you can you know hit me up on Twitter. I'm at JS4. That's J-S-F-O-U-R. Terrific. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Thank you. And now for the last of our three conversations from the O'Reilly AI Conference. Here's the co-chair of the O'Reilly AI program, Roger Chen. Roger has been an investor, and now he's working on a new venture himself. But along the way, he's become an expert on artificial intelligence and how it's getting applied. Welcome, Roger. Hey, how's it going? So... A thing that has struck me in, in going to a lot of these talks and talking with people here is that we're, we're finally talking about AI products. People who, um, you know, AI has gone from the research lab into things that get deployed and sent out to, to customers. Is that something you saw coming for a while? Yeah, certainly. And I think it, uh, it'll only continue to, to uh, grow. Um, I think 
Jan LeCun played it really well. I think he talked about how we've come pretty far with um, some of our AI technologies, but he also highlighted how we have so much more to go, we have so much more to do and develop. And to me, all that means is as these new things uh, develop, people will find creative new ways to apply them to create value. And I think when that happens, even more products will be applied by, will be powered by AI. So, but initially it seems like it's a lot of things where you're taking some human function and you're automating it. Uh, and then as Hillary Mason said in, in her talk yesterday and, and uh, elsewhere in this episode of the podcast, um, you know, you kind of move from just like automating things that humans already do to creating entirely new kinds of products, right? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, you're right. I think one of the early areas where AI is seeing a lot of traction is just in automating uh, pattern recognition, right? Now, what I think is interesting for that is as as that happens, people are going to be creative and thinking about how that might change the workflow of how people interact with uh, products and services, right? And this this is both in the enterprise world as well as in the consumer world. And when I think that happens, I think there's going to be a lot of innovation via UI and UX. And I think this is highlighted uh, by a couple speakers here uh, this year too, Aparna uh, from Google, as well as Lily Chen from Microsoft talked very extensively about how UI and UX matters uh, for, for this. And as, as pe- people pay a little more attention to that and to design, I think we're going to see some uh, long-lasting products come out of all this. Do users still think of it as AI once it's actually in a product? Or then is it just like a feature and AI is still whatever's left? Yeah, it's funny. Um, it's funny because I think right now a lot of things are branded as AI, you know, it be, partly because it is a rising tide of interest in technologies enabling new things and part, part, partly because there's a lot of marketing value that comes with that. I do think at a certain point, a lot of these interfaces, which we you know, call AI and bots, um, are just going to be known as seamless, great user experiences and interfaces for people to uh, procure or use a product or service, right? Um, so I think it will die down a bit then. But then again, I think the notion of AI ha- has always been a little bit of a moving puck. And um, I-, I don't think it's going to go away altogether. It'll just kind of move to new types of products and services. For a long time, people have been reluctant to call this era of machine learning AI because they're, you know, they talk about like broken promises in the past with AI or the, or the AI winter um, that happened after the last time people started using the term AI. Um, how comfortable are you using the term AI for this? <laughs> Putting me on a spot here, John. Um, you know, frankly, I, I, I have a bit of a fear of buzzwords in general. Um, that being said, uh, AI sort of is an over-encompassing term that describes, to me, this spectrum, this evolution of interesting uh, technologies, including, you know, we we'll start off with originally more traditional machine learning methods to now deep learning to what's next, right? I'm sure plenty more. So I think it is a good kind of catch-all. And at the end of the day, um, part of my jadedness <laughs> with the term comes from the fact that I, I come from the tech world. And the reality is uh, to, to the broader, broader public, a- AI is definitely the most recognizable and uh, appropriate name for some of these technologies. So Roger, uh, what is the origin of the AI conference then, um, you know, as distinct from sort of big data and data science? Yeah, for me personally, this is just something uh, I, I personally wish would have existed two, three years ago when I was learning more about the field. And I was going to events, industry events. Um, I was an investor at the time. Um, and those events are great, but they never got into any technical depth about how some of these things were done. Whereas you yeah, had also other events, uh, great conferences like NIPS and, and so forth, amazing events. But 
they were overly technical for, for someone like me. They're, they tended to be a little bit more academic and less industry focused. And I know my co-chair, Ben Lorica, the chief data scientist at O'Reilly Media, had been thinking about that gap uh, while he was there for quite a while too. So we came together, uh, got this thing started. And, and the mission here is to create a forum that's um, for practitioners, by practitioners, right? Having people who implement AI come and talk about how they do it and have attendees who come and learn and are able to bring back a piece of information that they can actually act on, whether that's figuring out how, figuring out how to build an organization around this new technology practice or figuring out the best library uh, to implement uh, a specific feature product, right? Um, and hopefully, hopefully we've done that. Hopefully we're on our way to doing that. We're going to have more next year, and we're looking forward to having more people come. So is AI something that any company can go out and start thinking about and implementing, or is it still the, you know, the province of um, really smart people in Silicon Valley and a handful of other places? It's an interesting question because uh, I do think that the talent pool for understanding how to uh, build and implement and uh, productize AI technologies is rather small right now, still relatively small. That said, that talent pool is increasing and spilling into organizations that might never have had it before. And so now you're gonna have more companies that are able to incorporate it. And furthermore, the ability to uh, implement some of these technologies is getting easier. Uh, I mean, just at this conference alone, we had Bonsai.ai reveal some of their platforms and tools for making it easier to, to program. So for those who aren't familiar, they're taking sort of a visual basic approach towards uh, implementing deep learning. And I just came from a talk uh, by Matt Zayler at Clarify who talked about opening up a bunch of APIs to allow developers to use that for image recognition, object recognition app applications, right? So suddenly, you know, as you see more and more of those services pop up, you're going to have developers, right? Developers, not necessarily AI experts who are able to build interesting applications. And developers certainly, you know, expands the AI pool into a much larger talent pool, into a much larger set of companies that can build some interesting things this uh, conference, as well as kind of the modern idea of AI, grows in some way out of uh, the big data movement and sort of data science and this idea that every company uh, over the last five or seven years has built a, a data science operation in some way. Often it's in, you know, marketing or, um, or in operations or something. But this idea that you kind of instrument stuff and measure it and analyze it is, uh, is widespread. Do you see AI as a function that... Um, companies will sort of build up at the management level, like data science, or is it something that'll be more at the product uh, level? It's, it's a nuanced question um, because I think the reality is a lot of the big decisions around incorporating AI technologies, especially for larger companies, uh, comes from a top-down directive from, uh, from executives. And part of that is because they see this sea change of uh, activity of new products and new innovations and they attribute that to AI. Now, that being said, often there, aren't, there isn't the in-house talent and the executives themselves, of course, aren't gonna implement some of these AI technologies. So then that, that ends up turning into a spree to acquire talent, right? And that, of course, comes in the form of acquiring companies, but also comes in a form of more traditional means like hiring uh, as well, too. So it's a little bit of both. I think kind of this top-down directive from the executive teams, but, uh, to actually, actually implement it, you have to bring that talent in-house. So that, that definitely comes from the bottom up. Terrific. Roger Chen, thanks so much for chatting. If listeners uh, to the program want to find you online, uh, where do they look? Um, 
go to at RGR Chen on Twitter, although I don't tweet. <laughs> Terrific. But you're, you're at least on the messaging platform. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Roger. Thank you. Thank you, John. So there you have it. People are talking about real AI products, not just AI as something off in the future, but AI as something that can be developed into a marketable product today. If you're interested in AI, and especially AI for bots, come to O'Reilly Bot Day on October 19th. For more information on O'Reilly Bot Day, visit O'Reilly.com bots. From New York at the O'Reilly AI Conference, I'm John Bruner.